Hello and welcome to another episode of Cranky Talk, a show for av geeks and non-av geeks alike. We tackle anything related to airlines and sometimes beyond now, kind of whenever we feel like it. Dave, it's it's been a while, so welcome back. It, it's been a while, yeah, it has been a while. Um, it's, uh, it's good to be here? <laughs> Come on, you know you've missed it, Dave. We've been busy I, I with have... other stuff. I have missed uh, specifically hearing from my adoring public, uh, Dave's Army. I, I see you. I hear you. Um, you're not far from my thoughts or my heart uh, at all times. So I can't, I can't take this. <laughs> We're going to have to end this for good now. This is just too much. All right. Well, listen, this week we're going to use the Wayback Machine. We are talking to Wallace Bell, who retired from American a couple years back. Uh, but Wallace, when I started at America West, was in charge of yield management. Uh, so the person who was deciding how many tickets to sell uh, at each fair, basically, and how much to overbook. And uh, we're going to talk about the old days and how things have changed since then. And I promise it's interesting. Even Dave can pretend that he thought it was interesting. Right, Dave? It was interesting. It was an it was a good talk about the industry and you know all the all the things that you used to have to do and how everything has changed. Uh, there's a little bit about travel agencies in there and you know all kinds of good stuff for all you nerds and av geeks. That was almost believable, Dave. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> anyway, let's get on to it. All right, today we are talking to Wallace Bell. Now Wallace was when I started at America West in the late 90s. Wallace was the director of yield management. Uh, and I started in pricing. So I was the one setting the fares. And then uh, Wallace was at a much higher level than me, uh, was the one who was determining how many seats to sell at each fair, how much to overbook, do all that kind of stuff, uh, for lack of a, a better description. So we're going to talk about the old days today. So Wallace, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Glad to be here. So can we start just explaining to people what happened after that? So you were, uh, this was 25 years ago, you were director of yield management. So where did your career take you after that? Nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, great start. Well, yeah, that's great. So I, I, start, I, I, came, I started at Northwest uh, out of business school in 92 in revenue management. Um, got to America West because I hate, I couldn't deal with Minnesota right, since growing up in Florida. Uh, came out here to Phoenix and worked a few jobs and got a director job in yield. I was always in revenue management. Worked had a director job in yield right around the time you got there, um, which I actually loved because um, revenue management to me was there were two places in an airline you could actually make a difference in terms of being profitable or not. And one was scheduling the figure, you know, figuring out where to fly, how often to fly, what aircraft to fly, et cetera. And the other was revenue management. And so you did feel like for an airline that made money at best one out of every three years and was always looking at chapter 11. Um, it was a place you could have an impact. So I did the, revenue management and the yield management jobs specifically in late 98 um i got quote unquote promoted to a senior director job in financial planning working under Derek kerr who i guess just retired from um american 
I absolutely stunk at that job. Um, (laughs) I didn't, I didn't feel like it did anything. It was just basically doing the auditing every month of, you know, which cost centers overspent or underspent. And if so, had to come up with various explanations of why. Uh, Derek was kind enough not to fire me. I know he wanted to fire me. Um, (laughs) and, And Derek's a good friend of mine. But I just, you know, my brain wasn't wired for that job to get excited about it. Um, so around 2000, uh, Kirby, who at that time I think had come back to or was had become sort of the chief marketing officer. I don't know if we had that position or not, but he was clearly in charge of revenue management, uh, schedule planning, et cetera. I think Derek had said to Kirby, I'm going to fire Wallace, but do you want him back? And so Kirby came to me and said, would you like to come back? Uh, so I did go back. And and to be clear, this is current CEO of United, Scott Kirby. Yeah, Scott Kirby. Here, just to make sure everyone knows. Um, but um, yeah, he asked me, would I want to, would I like to come back? And I said, you know, I said, yeah, I knew I was a bad fit for where I was. And um I went back, I might have gone back into like a, 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 what's it called? A revenue analysis position. So basically in in RM, you basically had the yield job, you had a pricing job and you had a revenue analysis, which was the one saying we're doing the right stuff or the wrong stuff. Um, Small group, maybe, you know, five to seven people, maybe in the entire group, the whole company was small. Um, But I think yield management, when I ran it, only had about 25 total people. Pricing only had probably 15. Does that seem right, Brett? Mm, If that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it was small. Um, But anyway, I did the um, revenue analysis probably, God, probably for four or five years. I actually kind of hated that job, too. (laughs) (laughs) We're really setting up a great pattern here. (laughs) Well, no, the problem with that job was when you're working in-house, it was fun meaning working with the yield guy and the pricing guy uh, or woman, whoever, but that job, you ended up people from outside of the organization. So whether it was sales or finance, whatever, they're always coming to you, asking you explain this or, you know, do an analysis of this and that or with the other. And it's like, you're not even part of my group and I don't care why you even need this stuff. But (laughs) um, I, I was in that job at the time of the merger with us airways and so starting in 05, Tom Tringa got promoted to the open vice presidency of revenue management. Uh, I think I might have moved back into yield briefly. Uh, the best job I had probably started around 2007 or eight, and it was international revenue management for the new combined company since U.S. Airways had a larger international presence. And so working on that um you know, it was basically Caribbean and Europe with eventually we added Rio, but uh, you worked a lot with the sales teams were actually really important in those countries uh, because we did generate, you know, out of Israel, for example, we generated over 50% of the revenue for that route out of Israel. So you had to know what was going on in Israel. And so I traveled there frequently and worked very closely with the sales teams there to understand how the markets worked. Um other places like with the sales team that's a that's a new concept uh american seems to have lost Uh, (laughs) we had really good relationships with them and you know we couldn't always do what they wanted but at least you listened and understood here's what the local market says they need and it wasn't true in every place so in i don't know uh, frankfurt or germany 
if we were generating 75, 90% of revenue from U.S. point of sale, they could say whatever they wanted to say, but it was kind of pointless, right? So I couldn't give them really <laughs> low fares for, for, for uh, very profitable times of year to help them have better relationships with their, you know, their clients. Yeah. Uh, but in a market where you did generate significant revenue from the so Caribbean is a perfect example of that we, you generated nothing point of sale Caribbean. It was all us people going to the Caribbean, but yeah. So I did that job really up until the merger with Americans. So I probably did that job for seven years or so. And it was great. I, I actually loved it. And got to, when we merged, you know, I went out there but I was never going to move there. I had kids going into high school and, you know, my wife's from Phoenix and I didn't want to live in Dallas. So, but I, I stayed for about five years as mostly in consultancy roles and it, it worked out and, you know, eventually they were looking for people to go and I said, yes, I'm happy to go. And that was about a year and a half before COVID. And if COVID had hit, I would have been told to go. So that was fine. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, good. So you left on your own terms then, even better. Uh, but, you know, you've had this, I guess, nearly 30-year career, mostly in RM, except for the brief soul-sucking venture into finance. Uh, but so you've seen all the changes. And I think what really spurred this decision, you know, the the idea for us to have this conversation was when I wrote about how Delta was increasing uh, they're overbooking to account for some of the COVID related changes. And, uh, you know, was talking about how we used to overbook Vegas, uh, insane amounts on a, on a Friday night. Uh, and then we started talking about the old days again. <laughs> and this, this is where, you know, we thought this would be fun to kind of talk about what has changed so much over the years, because it really is a completely different world from an RM perspective now. Right. Oh yeah, and in, in in a multitude of ways. Um, yeah, you are correct. <clears throat> I mean, the the overbooking rate or the no show rates that you would commonly see. You know, you book you overbook flights. Generally, it was by day of week and sort of by time band. Um, that's what the model would use. So a Tuesday flight might have a different no show rate than a Thursday flight at the same time of day, etc. But fifteen percent no show rates were not uncommon at all. And that would be okay, but it wasn't the no-show rate so much as it was the standard deviation around the no-show rate. So you'd have 15, 18% no-show rates on a 757, which is 190 seats roughly, and you know a 10% uh, standard deviation or so. And I took enough stats in business school to know that that's you're going to have disasters. <laughs> and we did regularly. We did. we did have disasters. And, you know, I think the other big thing that, that people working in the industry today probably couldn't fathom, which was, I don't know what your recollection of this would be, Brett, but I, I would suspect the only way America West could sell tickets was through travel agencies, or you literally had to call America West Airlines and book a ticket, which people did used to do. But probably 70% or more of our tickets were sold through travel agents. And so they had the power and they were obviously compensated quite well for that. Um, what was the commission with 10%? It was 10%. And 10% I mean, but that was, that was earlier. 
I'm trying to remember exactly. I mean, it was during the 90s that that all just ended up going away at some point. But it was it was graduated, right? Like, I think it went to 8% at one point. Yeah, that, the, I think the, the the steps were it was 10% and then it was 10% capped. I think it may be $50 hmm. or maybe 100 The First they capped it, then they lowered it to 8 And then somebody eventually lowered it. You know, I think it, it might have gone from 8 to 0 but it, it went to zero fairly quickly. Um, yeah. But but travel agencies had 100% of the power. And they were the ones making your bookings. And you were terrified to penalize them. And America West was behind the times. Because uh, when we found this company that was doing what we call flight firming today, um, we'd never heard of it. I didn't even know the solution existed, but you could essentially mine the PNRs to see if it was ticketed or not. And so we we hooked up with a company that was down in Tucson. I think it was called AAI. It was, and um, they ended up being bought by Amadeus, actually. Okay, yeah. yeah. And it was just a bunch of people that were really good at PNRs. They understood what was in the passenger name record and how to see what... Well, if it was ticket, it had a valid ticket or a number or not. And they would, they came to us and on a per PNR basis, it was maybe a penny a PNR, a couple of pennies. It wasn't very expensive. Um, but they would send a note to the travel agent saying, this, this booking is not showing a valid ticket number. You've got 48 hours to ticket it. If not, we're going to cancel it. And that was a big, when you, as an airline taking the risk of a offending your travel agencies, which are 80% of your revenue, whatever. And then B unilaterally saying, I'm going to cancel a booking that you have made that I depend on for revenue because it's not ticketed. We thought there would be a lot more backlash than there was. There actually wasn't that much probably because American was already doing it. They were using that same company. Um, but that was the solution to the problem. The problem it, it went from fifteen percent to four percent, kind of within three months or six months. Yeah. See, th- this is what I think is incredible. And and Dave, I mean, you you grew up in in a world of, uh, you know, people book online, and there yeah. is no. It, it's not this same like holding tickets forever. I mean, of, of course, you know, we we do that at Cranky Concierge. We put things on hold, but. Um, you know, today it's commonplace. If the ticket time limit expires, those segments are killed. Like that's just how that works. But back then, like you say, Wallace, agencies controlled almost everything and they would just leave things on hold and not listen to the time limits if they were in there and just do whatever they wanted. And we had no power to do anything. Yeah. And I think they could even do something where they could just touch the PNR and, it would give it another 48 hours of looking like it was still in the process of, you know, being booked or being ticketed. So churning, doing whatever, all all kinds of games. I mean, there, there is, uh, certainly, you know, anytime you go from a position of absolute power to very little power, like you, you see it requires a huge change in that industry as well. And you did, you saw so many agencies go out of business or agents just leave because, I mean, the, a lot of the things they were doing uh, used to make them money for not adding much value, and then that all disappeared. And it's not, you know, it's not that agencies ever went away completely, right? I mean, we still had, especially on the on the corporate side with TMCs now, as they call them, but um, you know, there were always those. But at least you could hold them to the rules <laughs> more so. Yeah. 
So that went, you said it dropped from like 15% to like 4% for the no-show rate? Yeah, it was very quick. Yeah, That's I mean, that problem essentially, you know, problem, quote unquote, almost went away. Yeah, we still had over, you know, we still had had issues and we would have flights with oversales, but gone were the days where they were trying to find 30 volunteers at midnight on a flight from Vegas to JFK. Yeah. And, you know, and having to call the police because they couldn't get the volunteers and people were really angry. And, you know, as a side note to that, for about six months, I used to have to wake up on weekends and get on an operations call and they would essentially just go through all the disasters of overbooking from the night before. And <laughs> they wanted me to explain, you know, what and what the problem was. And, and I'd, first of all, I had no data in front of me. I'm sitting in my house and uh, <laughs> we barely had computers. I probably, didn't, I probably didn't even have a home computer at that point. I'm sure I didn't have a home computer. It was the mid nineties, but uh, yeah. And, and, you know, and you're just on there, you're basically on there saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There was, you didn't have an answer for what had happened. A lot of times, quite frankly, it had been like a downgrade from a 757 to a 737. So it was, it wasn't my fault or our fault, but it was, um, it was a very dysfunctional system that really impacted the employees at the airport negatively and certainly the customers negatively. So the customers are in so much better place flying today than they were 25 years ago because you know i fly a decent amount and i'll occasionally see them soliciting volunteers but it's usually one or two people is all they need and 25 years ago it was frequent that they would need 10 15 20 30 volunteers um, in order to depart yeah and you know on top of that i mean i remember the the summer of 2000 uh united got all the headlines for their pilot issues but we were running a terrible operation uh that summer which only made the job harder right because then you just don't have good data to work with because right. you have flights canceling all the time downgrades you know all, all these kind of things uh and you know i i used to go out to the airport and help out uh because I don't know why I loved it for some reason. <laughs> and, and occasionally I would drag some of the yield guys out there and make them work their flights, which was really fun. Uh, <laughs> but I would go out there and, you know, we had the passenger assistance counters and the lines would snake down the hallways because there's really not another way that you could get help other than maybe sitting on hold with reservations, which, you know, good luck with that. But there wasn't really any sort of functionality on online to be able to fix your situation uh which you know today at least we have some of that uh yeah i mean that's that's actually a really good point and flyers today as bad as it can be flying and i've experienced plenty of bad times in the last five years but they've made huge strides in the customer service side of the airline just by having the electronic ability to be able to communicate with each person individually in real time yeah Yeah. and it's not perfect but you at least remove a, a chunk of the people out that would have otherwise been standing in line. So you can at right. least open up the other channels for other people too. But, but running about operation, I mean, how much harder does that make it to do the yield work? Honestly, not that much. No? Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, cause when in the yield work, at least in terms of opening and closing certain classes, you know, for sale, 
um, you're, you have a wealth of data and you just have to choose what data to include or not include. So you could cut out, if you ran a bad operation for a week, you could just say, let's just get rid of all the flight booking information or, or you know, the data or even the overbooking, uh, the no-show rates for those flights. Just throw out that entire week. You still have, uh, you know, 52 other weeks, you have 51 other weeks you could use if you want to use a full year. Um, sure. So, so it wasn't that, I mean, it's horrible for the airline. Um, I never saw bad operations necessarily impact demand going forward. Because that's what you would swear. Like Southwest, this was Christmas, right? Where they yeah. ran a really bad operation. So I'm yep. sure the people in their revenue management department are saying, okay, we're getting beat up in the press. It's all over the TV. Um, should we less? Should we reduce demand for flights going forward and sell more cheap tickets? Because we think people are going to try to actively avoid us. But, you know, the public, sadly enough... Um, People got to go where they got to go. And if you got the only nonstop flight in a market, they're going to give you consideration. If the price point's okay, they're probably going to take the risk because connecting is always worse than, than a nonstop. But yeah. But yeah, and that's what that. we've seen. Yeah, you hear that, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> they, that's what we've seen with these disruptions like this. But it was different. You know, I don't even remember this for America West as much, but I know for United in the summer of 2000, that had a lasting impact because it was so long. Um, when the, I mean, it was the whole summer that the pilots disrupted the operation and American was there with open arms. Um, I guess that's the difference is you have Chicago, you, you know, you had a two airline hub, so there's somewhere right. they could go. Maybe yeah. it wouldn't have had an impact otherwise. I have to be honest, Brett. I don't even, I don't even specifically remember the summer of 2000. First of all, <laughs> first of all it was 23 years ago. And then yeah. Secondly, well. There were so many periods where one airline or another ran a bad operation, including ours, that they don't, <clears throat> I don't have placeholders in my brain where I yeah. remember each one. That's fair. That's fair. But I, I, I mean, the one thing I remember about us, I mean, well, we had no pricing power, really. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, you know, we, we were the spill carrier of choice there kind of in the late 90s. Um we, well, we, we did have it in the sense when you guys started undercutting OA on their nonstops. Oh, yeah. I mean, we if we wanted to be the price leader, we could. We didn't have the ability. I mean, on the low side. We right. didn't have on the, the low, ability we had, we to control on the high side. The side. <laughs> sure. And we did a ton of that. And that was, you know, in, in, uh, in early 2002 when we did uh, Project Shamrock there where we completely changed – all of our fares and went to a low fare model. Um, we, we certainly got their attention there <laughs> and it was the typical responses. I mean, Northwest coming in with exceedingly cheap fares from Phoenix to everywhere, uh, right. you know, and, and that's, you know, the, the different airlines back then always had very different uh, personalities, which I remember as being part of that. Uh, and, you know, I haven't worked on the airline side for a while now, but, what changed in that regard over the years when, you know, as there was more consolidation, like, did, did you lose a lot of that, that kind of personality? Yeah. I mean, thinking back to the wild West in the nineties and early two thousands, you had seven airlines, seven majors, basically um, Northwest continental us airways have gone away in America West. But, you know, I think you had seven airlines. We were almost always, 
near bankruptcy, putting up yeah. a putting up a positive face to the public. But even the large airlines, you know, were were struggling, and they could, they weren't consistently profitable. Um, pricing was, I wasn't in, pricing was the true wild west. Yeah, and that was my comment I wrote to you in that email. It dawned on me looking at it as an outside observer um, that the the analysts within the pricing department got so hung up on hating the other carriers mm-hmm. and wanting to, you know, fire a shot at them or whatever, that I told my friend, Emil Burr, who ran pricing for a considerable amount of that time at, at America West and US, but it was like every three years or two years, you can fire your whole team and just bring yeah. in new people because they just get so much bitterness in them. And I hate Northwest. And it might make sense for my airline to do this and match this price point because Northwest suggested it and I hate them, I'm not gonna match it. And so a fare increase doesn't go through because it didn't go through in all the markets. So it ends up unraveling. And so the industry would have benefited from something Northwest was, was gonna do, but you would have personal animus within pricing departments refusing to go along and probably not even telling their boss that they didn't go along or in the boss later comes like, why did this unravel? And it turns out it was, you know, two angry pricing analysts that <laughs> didn't want to give Northwest a win, which would have been a win for everyone. Which is true because when you think about it, especially on the domestic side, you know, at the time, three pricing releases every day. So you would get, uh, <laughs> you know, Everything would get filed through ATP Co., the central clearinghouse. And then three times a day, you would see what everyone else is doing. So you spent your days as a pricing analyst, or I spent my days as a pricing analyst, you know, just deeply entrenched in the weeds of what everyone is doing. And you learn these these personalities very quickly of the different airlines. And you're right. There is this – you get this chip on your shoulder about certain airlines doing this or that. Um, and the only time – that you really would get that shaken up is when an airline did something you didn't expect that didn't seem to fit within what, you know, you would expect from them. And then that would, I remember as an analyst, if I saw that, I'd be like, what are they, what are they doing? <laughs> like, this is different, right. but otherwise you don't even really think about it. You're just kind of rolling through your day and just, you know, trying to get through one pricing load just to get ready for the next one that's coming in. So, right. Um, so I see what you're saying. So you, you should go through a team every three or four years. But do you think it's the same today? I mean, you had at least more exposure to that when you were consulting on the American side after the merger. I mean, you have so few airlines now and you don't have the same kind of pricing initiatives that you used to have in the same way. Yeah, it is definitely not the same. And, you know, and, and back, I had forgotten that you only had the three releases a day. And so if you released, you had a three to four hour window before anyone could even respond, right? Yeah, well, so that's, you know, that was kind of the thinking back in the day was we would try and file if we were going to do a sale. So on the weekends, there was only the one release. So we would put right. it in on Sunday. Uh, so that it was there Monday morning. Yeah. It was there Monday morning so that when somebody came in, they couldn't match until the first transmission on Monday morning. And then it would still, once the first transmission came in, it would still take a couple hours for it to be loaded into all the reservation systems and everything. Right. So you had that first mover thing going on there. Yeah, I remember ATP code, didn't they go to hourly? That was the next step. 
You know, I don't remember. I don't even know where they are now. I know they added, but I don't know exactly where yeah, it is. I, but I at think the, time... the, but the step from three is they went to hourly. And I remember us freaking out, like, how are we, what are we going to do? We're going to staff 24-7 and have somebody in here in the middle of the night. And, <laughs> you know, I, we ultimately didn't do that. And I actually think when it went to more frequently updated pricing, the um, the anxiety actually went away. Because in the old days, when you only had three a day, somebody got a four-hour advantage on pricing. All the carriers were, you know, more, they were quick to react more uh, vehemently than they might have otherwise. And now since the people are filing fares on the fly, you know, it's not as, the impact is kind of reduced. Yeah, which is, is probably helpful all the way around, I would yeah, think. Yeah, it probably calms people down. Yeah, so you get less of the... Uh... The knee-jerk craziness, I suppose. Yeah. But there's also probably just a lot more automation today, is my assumption. Right. That, that you know you don't have the same level of manual analysis that that maybe you have uh, had before. Um, so it takes some of the personality out of it, I would think. Um, but yeah. it, it's it, today it it has to be different, especially when you're just so big. I mean that that's part of the the issue. I mean when we were at America West, I mean we were we had to be scrappy, right? Because we were generally almost out of business <laughs> like at any given time. Yeah, I think America West actually did its best when the realization, I don't know if it was Kirby who first had it or or who did, but um, realizing if we play the same way everybody else plays, we're going to lose just because our network is smaller. Our hub, you know, Phoenix at the time, when, we, when, I lived, when I first moved here, Phoenix had 2 million people. It's now five but you know phoenix wasn't a large enough market to to try to dominate and drive profitability from the way dallas fort worth is and houston things like that are today and this is why i still say to this day that my time at america west it's the best job i'll ever have because <laughs> it was it was so much fun just really when you have nothing to lose you know, you're not worried about, about oh, no, what happens if this happens? I mean, we we knew when we completely redid our fare structure in 02, we knew it was going to piss everyone off. We knew they were going to respond. But, you know, the, the, the answer from us was, so what? <laughs> if we keep doing what we're going to do, we're not going to be here. So Yeah, and that was like the revenue analysis team. I don't think I was running it at that point. But, yeah, they would looked at it and said, we have more to gain than we – we know we're going to lose on some levels. But we have more to gain by – by stealing high fare passengers off of other airlines in their nonstop, mainly the business travel, um, by getting them to connect in a warm weather, good a good weather hub in Phoenix, and it worked. And the other thing, I, I don't, <clears throat> I, I mean, I'd be interested in your opinion on this, Brett. But <clears throat> for your listeners, unless they are of my age or your age or worked at airlines back in that era. You can't conceive at America West and even at U.S. Airways, you could make huge decisions with only three people. Yeah. And at America, one of the first thing I noted when I got to American, um, every meeting has 40 people in it. Mm -hmm. And pretty much all 40 of those people feel that they have veto power over whatever decision is about to be made. Um. Because it's going to impact whether it's frequent flyer or you know whatever group, but the beauty of the small—I've told my kids if they ever worked for an airline, I would 
let's say go work for Spirit or Frontier, one of the small ones, because um, A, you can stand out, and B, decisions don't get made. Um, that you don't have to have 50 people buy in to get a, get something done. You just need to have the right three people. And at America West and even U.S. Airways, that was basically Kirby, whoever was head of revenue management. So most of that time would have been Tringa or back in the 90s, it was other people. But you can get three or four people together and say, we're going to try something pretty radical. It may hurt, but we have the tools in place to at least measure if it does hurt. And we can go back and you know revert to our former policy or position um, I don't think that's possible anymore today. No, I, I think you're right. And, and I think the other piece of that too is that even at the lowest levels, I mean, when I was just a punk analyst coming out of college, if you had an idea, it, it could easily get to management if there was yeah. something and that the they wanted. And the best part of that was you were the one presenting it to management. Absolutely. Scared the crap yeah. out of me, but it was great. Well, but, yeah, and it would also, you know, improve the prospects for your career, et cetera. Whereas today, your idea probably gets shot down by your manager. It doesn't even make it to the director. Um, yeah. And if it does get presented in a forum where decisions are going to be made, you're not going to even, they may let you in the room, but they're not going to let you talk. Yeah, maybe so, which is... Yeah. Unfortunate, but but this is why you know going from America West, which I as I said describe as the best job I'll ever have. I went to business school and then I went to United after that, and that I describe as the worst job I'll ever have, uh, for the exact reasons that you said. Um, there was a there was this meeting that they had called Happy Plane, where it was like forty people sitting in a room, not agreeing on anything and never getting anything done. And the the bureaucracy, it, this was in the throes of bankruptcy when, you know, you would hope maybe something could break through. But no, there was just so much inertia and there was no, it, just nothing changed. You needed someone like like Scott to show up and, and really shake up a big airline like that. But that didn't happen for another 15 years. Uh, so, you know, that was so frustrating to me because even if you had an idea or anything, it, it never went anywhere. And you just sit around and around in these meetings just not getting anywhere. And that sounds like kind of the state of the industry still today, unless you're at one of the little guys. But yeah, it's, you're almost rewarded for not doing, not shaking things up. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it plays out. But uh, Wallace, I want to thank you for your time and for uh, going down yep. memory lane here. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, thanks and, for having me on guys. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks for tuning in this week, everybody. Hopefully you've missed it as much as well as much as I have, Dave. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I have no idea when we'll be back, but uh, if you leave us those five star ratings uh, on iTunes, that's uh, that's always a help. It gets uh, people, new people listening in, and uh, different opportunities for us to do more special episodes like this. So uh, leave us those five star ratings, please. And if you have suggestions for what you'd like us to cover in a future show, just tell us and we might yeah. actually listen. This is Maybe. It, email us at info at Tell us what you want to see. 
we will be happy to take that into account. I don't know, Dave. Should we do something about like the NEA blowing up the Northeast Alliance? Ooh, we, that uh, you're uh, you're putting a teaser out there. <laughs> maybe we'll see. I don't know. I feel like we need to know what's going to happen first uh, before it we is. Really talk it about is it. news. It is news. I bet we will probably do something once we know more details. All right. Well, there you have it. Now I'm not there the you one go. teaser. Dave is saying. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everybody. We'll. we'll Talk to you again soon.